So, Mark. Yes? When we first meet acclaimed thespian John Lithgow in this movie, he is playing an Italian physicist. I mean, the accent is impeachable, or impeccable, unimpeachable. (laughs) I would say impeachable is fine. (laughs) Impeachable is more accurate. By the way, the guy who is credited as his dialect coach is just an Italian tailor who worked at the studio. Of course. Like, of course. It's not going to be a good dialect coach. No, it's just a guy that Lithgow listened to. I think it's also honestly better that his accent is so bad when his last name is Lizardo. Yeah, it works out. But anyway, Lithgow plays Dr. Lizardo only briefly before he is electrocuted into being John Warfin. Yes, after being half launched into the eighth dimension. Which mostly appears to be transitory space. I cannot wait to describe the plot of this movie. (laughs) So Lithgow spends most of the movie playing somebody who's possessed by someone else. And I was wondering, do you have a favorite possession movie? Or at least somebody piloting somebody else's body movie? Well, the first one I can think of, obviously possession brings us into the more horror world than the comedy world. But we could even be talking about like soul if you wanted. I thought, of course, of a movie we have discussed on this podcast, The Evil Dead. Oh, a great answer. Which also does have some comedy elements to it. I assumed you were going to go for Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, also great. But The Evil Dead, just the disgustingness of the bodies, and also the one trapped in the basement who alternates between just, like, creepy voice, I'm gonna kill you, to pretending to be better and back is very freaky. I mean, that's what's great about The Evil Dead. Yeah. And, uh, you know, low budget. Always fun. Still the best one. Of the three. I haven't seen the others yet. Of the four. I've seen the remake, four. too. Oh, yes. I forgot that existed. Have you watched the It's sh- okay. Have you watched the show? I have not seen the show. Uh, I know nothing I am about kind it. of intrigued about the new sort of soft relaunch of The Evil Dead that will theoretically come out this year, but... It's a question mark because it was developed as an HBO Max movie. Ah. And boy, are they cutting. Cutting them left and right. Right. And like the official policy of HBO currently, well, of Warner Brothers Discovery is there is no such thing as an HBO Max movie. <sighs> so dumb. There have been some rumors that it might actually get a theatrical release. Yeah. Or just they remove the Max from the name and put it on HBO, maybe. No, I think the attitude is there's no such thing as a direct-to-streaming movie from that company. But I just air it once on HBO. Like, Look, I agree with you. HBO used to make movies. I don't know the last time HBO had an original movie. I don't know. Like, Was it like the Joe Paterno one? I don't know. The first one I thought of was Bessie, in which Queen Latifah that was like 10 years ago. Bessie Coleman. I know. That's, I figured there had been more since then. I just can't think of any. Yeah, because they did uh, Game Change. The, the Sarah Palin movie. Oh, they did yes. the Joe Paterno one. And then also, like, they sometimes just, like, acquire stuff and put it on. Like, mm-hmm. The Tale was released on HBO. Bad Education was released on HBO. But the new Evil Dead is, like, set in a high rise, which I'm skeptical of because, to me, Evil Dead should be in the middle of nowhere. Imagine a high rise in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. It's like Courage the Cowardly Dog's Farm was replaced by one skyscraper, and there's nothing around it. 
I think the premise of this one is like someone finds the book like in a basement storage unit of a high-rise apartment building. It's not a terrible idea. No, I get it. It doesn't feel as much like The Evil Dead. Yeah, it feels like a Necronomicon movie. Do you think that they will need to steal something and thus it will be a Tower Heist sequel? I mean, I feel like it's at the very least a spiritual sequel to Tower Heist. But it's a, it's a reverse. See, it's the Deadites want to steal the souls of the living people. Ah, right. Tower Heist, a movie that exists on a poster to me, and in no other media. Have you seen the poster for Tower Heist lately? No. Is it, like, weirder than I remember? Um, I'll let, let me pull it up before you do. Okay. Tower Heist, of course, directed by noted scumbag Brett Ratner. Also infamous for being a movie that was announced to be released day and date on demand, and the theater chain said absolutely not, because it was a simpler time. This was before the Trolls World Tour. Uh, of course, the Trolls went on their tour of the world. Remember when Trolls World Tour fundamentally changed the way movies get released in this country? No, but if any movie was gonna do it, honestly, it kind of makes sense that it's Trolls World Tour. <laughs> Alright, do you know the two names above the title on Tower Heist? Ben Stiller, Eddie Murphy? That's right. Wow, I cannot believe I <laughs> pulled that from the recesses of my brain. Okay, can you name any other people whose names appear in large print on the poster for the film Tower Heist? I cannot. I keep wanting to say Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but that would be the film Skyscraper. Yes, that's Skyscraper, which we covered on this podcast. I wasn't sure if you remembered that. I did remember it, because we recorded it the day it came out. That weekend, yeah. That weekend. Okay, so uh, running through the names on the poster for Tower Heist, a universal picture. We have Ben Stiller, Eddie Murphy, Casey Affleck, Alan Alda, Matthew Broderick, Tia Leone, Michael Pena, and Gabare Sidibe. What? <laughs> That's a weird list. It is a weird list. I will now share this poster with you. This isn't the main poster, but it is the one that has the whole cast. Easy to see. This is an ugly picture. It's not just a robbery. It's a payback. I would say we should do Tower Heist, but I think we shouldn't. I don't think we should. Okay. So, Will, what's your favorite possession movie? <laughs> so, the movie we're talking about this week made me think of like a dozen other movies that we're going to have a lot to talk about here. But frankly, a lot of movies that I liked more than it. And one of those is Men in Black, which features a transcendent performance. Of course. By our good man. Vincent Philip D'Onofrio as a pile of alien bugs piloting D'Onofrio's corpse. Yeah. That also, doesn't that have, um, it has one of the Twin Peaks actors possessed too. I can't remember her name. It probably does. That feels less up your alley. <laughs> I have not seen Twin Peaks, but I love this D'Onofrio performance. It rules. I forgot about that part. It was creepy when I was a kid. It's so funny. It is funny though. It's kind of, I remember it being kind of gross. It is. That's part of what's great about it. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Should we do Men in Black? The thing about Men in Black is there is no romance. Is there really? There's nothing. They don't, he doesn't flirt with anybody? Not really, which I like about it. Yeah. But like the most you can talk about is like human Vincent D'Onofrio and his wife. That would be a very short episode i think yeah it's not giving us a lot to work with no what a movie i'm just remembering that series and it is a lot doesn't michael jackson have a cameo in it 
He probably does. I mean, there's this screen where they show all of them monitoring all of the aliens who live among the humans. And it's mostly like celebrities that it would be funny for them to be aliens. And I would believe Michael Jackson appears in that shot. Yeah, I think he's like advocating to join Men in Black. Like in, that might be one of the sequels. That might, yeah. I think I remember Men in Black 2 much more than I remember Men in Black. I've only seen Men in Black 1 and Men in Black International, which is the fourth one, the Chris Hemsworth, Tessa Thompson one. The second one, I remember not bad. The third one, I don't think I watched. I mean, that came out quite a bit later. Yeah. And then I did not watch International. I mean, it's not great. I wish that instead they had followed the original pitch, which was to make a movie that was a Men in Black 21 Jump Street crossover. Now that I could get on board with. Right? Yeah. 21 Jump Street, great movie. Yeah. Now that's something we actually could add on the list. That's something we could do flirting. on the podcast. <laughs> All right. Next time we're looking for a broad comedy, I think we can add that one in. Yes. Speaking of broad films. Oh, is this broad? This movie covers not just one, but two dimensions. Not the ones you might expect. Not the ones you might expect. And I am excited to talk about it, even if watching it was confusing. Yeah. Because there's a lot to say at the very least. There's a lot to unpack. So let's get into it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Are dimensions vectors of transit, or are they places? I don't think this movie understands what dimensions means. (laughs) Also, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? And is it weird to date the estranged adopted identical twin of your dead wife i don't think it's estranged i think they were just separated that's a better word separated adopted identical twin of your dead wife the thing is like my big thesis as we move forward with talking about this movie is that it feels like axe cop what's axe cop axe cop was a web comic that i think was briefly adapted into like an animated show but i've only read like the first couple years of the web comic and the premise was it was like a late 20s animator playing with his five-year-old brother. This is all allegedly true as the background to the comic. And they were just like playing pretend and his brother made up a character named Axe Cop that he would pretend to be. And this animator would illustrate the stories that his brother invented. And so it's like well-drawn web comics with the story done by a five-year-old. And there's very much that sense of like, oh, and another thing. Oh, and I'm piling this thing on top of it. Oh, and oh, I for, like have forgotten about this and it's just going to get dropped. But later on, I might pull it out of nowhere. And The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, our movie this week, to me feels like a small child playing pretend. There is just this like sense of grabbing a bunch of things that a kid would think are cool. That's why our main character is a scientist, kind of an astronaut, and a rock star who everyone's obsessed with. And there are video games about him. Like These are all things that a kid would put together in a bucket. And... Similarly, like, I think the kid would be like, yes, obviously people should be in love with him. Here's this woman, uh, Penny Pretty, who can be in love with him. But then, like, it it almost feels like them having to cover their own butts where, like, the photo's on set and they have to be like, uh, uh, don't worry about it. That's just my dead wife who looks just like you. Have you seen the Onion, back when they did the Onion TV 
It was like their parody of a morning show where they interview the writer of an upcoming Fast and the Furious movie. I have not seen that one, but that was a great show. They say like, oh, coming up, the screenwriter of the new Fast and the Furious movie. And they cut to a six-year-old boy (laughs) talking about how it's fun when cars go fast and then explode. We're so excited to welcome one of Hollywood's brightest creative talents, the screenwriter behind this summer's blockbuster, the new Fast and the Furious movie, Fast Five. Chris Morgan, thanks for joining us. Hi, Chris. Now, Chris, these Fast and the Furious movies are just getting bigger and better. So when you sat down to write this installment, were there certain elements you wanted to include? I want the cars to drive fast and then some of them explode. Oh, that sounds so great. Now, I believe we have a clip to show our audience at home. Can you set the clip up for us, Chris? Uh Uh-huh. The car went out of the train, and then there's a hole in the train. Uh Uh-huh. And then the the car brought the box, then the police went after them, then... The, the, the box hit the cars and then it crashed into the ocean. That's this like, movie. I think having that sense enabled me to make sense of some of what was going on in this movie. Yes. The weird addition of the like 1980s fear of Japanese scientific development was also strange. But is it like it's, fearful? It's, it's not cool. It's not fearful in this movie, but it's like distilling that zeitgeist moment right i mean the 1980s are this period where japan in particular is entering the american consciousness quite a bit more this is the same summer as the karate kid right and there's the fact that like buckaroo bonsai is cool in part because he has this cool name but it feels like he was made half japanese just as an excuse for his last name to be bonsai no but i think they said his dad was from hong kong which makes it even weirder that his last name is Bonsai. Okay, well, we can clarify this, because I took a picture of the opening crawl of this movie. Thank God. So, just to be clear again, uh, this week we are covering the 1984 film, The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. This was a request from our longtime all-star listener, Fred. We're doing this for you. I am glad I've watched this. In a weird way. So, the movie starts... With a black screen and an opening crawl. Three paragraphs, just like Star Wars. It goes, Buckaroo Banzai, born to an American mother and a Japanese father, thus began life as he was destined to live it, going in several directions at once. All right, let's unpack. So, (laughs) he began life as he was destined to live it, going in several directions at once, because he's Japanese-American? Yeah, I guess that's just like a weird, like, understanding of what being biracial means. He's going to be pulled in some different directions, just as he is pulled towards uh, science and being a rock musician and having an army of child agents throughout the country who can respond whenever he needs them. A direct line to the president of the United States. A brilliant neurosurgeon, this restless young man grew quickly dissatisfied with a life devoted solely to medicine. He roamed the planet, studying martial arts and particle physics, collecting around him a most eccentric group of friends. Those hard-rocking scientists, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Okay, that's where I got Hong Kong from. Yes, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. And his bus says Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers, which is the name of his band. I did not put together that everyone in the band is also a scientist. Yes, and they're all also trained martial artists. And, and, they're, and they're handy with the machine. None gun. of them seem to be from Hong Kong. <laughs> no, none of them is from Hong Kong. That was paragraph one. And now... With his astounding jet car ready for a bold assault on the dimension barrier, 
Buckaroo Banzai faces the greatest challenge of his turbulent life. While high above Earth, an alien spacecraft keeps nervous watch on Team Banzai's every move. So that, the nervous spacecraft is watching. So does that mean the aliens are like watching, being like, shoot, these humans are about to figure out how to go through the eighth dimension. Like, let's keep an eye to make sure they don't accidentally take John Warfin out. I think it's the discovery of the ability for transdimensional travel. They're worried could then spread to John Warfin, which is John Warfin's plan, which is to steal the DeLorean. The Yes, steal the Deloitte, steal the technology necessary for transdimensional travel. Which is a cool-looking car a year before Back to the Future. Yes, a rocket car with a oscillator overdrive. An os- oscillator overdrive, yeah. A lot of the names of stuff in this movie are deliberately ridiculous. Yes, but it makes it difficult to remember them a few days later. But you've got, like, speaking of Back to the Future, Lizard Christopher Lloyd as John Big Bootay. Uh... All of the John names was very interesting because the Secretary of Defense then was also named John. Yeah, and he was working with them. No, he wasn't. He was just bad independently. Yeah, but he, like, was happy to work with them if they gave him weapons. Yeah, because he was more paranoid about the Russians than the genocidal, worse-than-Hitler aliens. I liked when they're having the conversation in the Oval Office about, like, Look, did we manage to stop the lizards, or should we just nuke the Russians so that we can be the ones to do it? <laughs> like, if the planet's gonna be destroyed, at least let us kill the Soviets. Yeah. They also, when they were talking about the, like, red... I can't remember what the aliens are called. Um, like, Lectroids? Lectroids versus the black Lectroids, and the president was like, is there gonna be a race war in New Jersey? What a weird movie. So, yeah, so where are you on Buckaroo Banzai? I found it very interesting to watch. And I did watch it in the setting in which I am most generous to movies, which is an airplane. Because I am one of those people, I read an article about it, and it's not just me, but like, I get more emotionally invested and cry more easily on airplanes than I do on land. That's interesting. I wonder why that is. I don't know, the article did not have any real clues, but they interviewed a lot of people that were just like, yeah, I watched the dumbest thing, and I started crying, and I have no idea why, because I've seen it again and had no emotional reaction. So, I was very charitable to this movie, and I did enjoy it. It kept my attention, because nothing ever lasted more than 30 seconds. (laughs) That's true. The movie does not demand that you focus on any one thing for long. Yeah. And then... Also, there was the fun twist of looking up, once I'd landed and had internet access, looking up why the rawhide seemed familiar and finding out it was the voice of Mr. Krabs. Oh, yeah, Clancy Brown. Yeah, that was a fun, fun moment. I was like, why does Clancy Brown sound familiar? Who was your favorite surprise (laughs) appearance in this movie? Because, like, some of the people, obviously, like, the opening credits give you Peter Weller. They give you John Lithgow. Yeah. I mean... John Lithgow was probably my favorite just because I didn't recognize him at first because of what they did with his hair and teeth. Oh, you're talking about his, like, rotten teeth and, like, spiky red hair as he's, like, in, like, the weirdest mental hospital ever? Yeah. Where he has, like, a large, like, loft apartment to himself. I know. His his room at this, like, hospital for the criminally insane is larger than my apartment. He's, like, electrocuting himself. That would probably be why it's my favorite, just because it, 
took me so long to figure out who he was because of how ridiculous they made him. I loved uh, an interview that John Lithgow did with the Philadelphia Inquirer where he talked about how his performance in this movie made his performance in the Twilight Zone look very measured. (laughs) And I don't know if you've seen the Twilight Zone movie, the George Miller sequence of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, but it is fully unhinged John Lithgow with fully unhinged George Miller swinging the camera wildly all over the place. I have not seen that. But Dr. Lizardo slash John Warfin, fascinating character, does not seem competent enough to have committed the atrocities he is said to have committed on his planet. No. But it might just be lack of familiarity with the technology on Earth. I guess. And overinflated self-confidence. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, I think the ones that stood out for me were some of the guys who were not going to show up in the opening credits, like Jonathan Banks as the asylum guard that he kills. Yeah, I don't think I recognized him until later. Like, it took a while to click. Yeah, I, like, rewound that scene and watched it again. And once I was watching for it, all of his physicality, it's just like, yep, that's Jonathan Banks, but 40 years ago with hair. That's the thing. I am so bad at identifying currently famous bald people when they have hair in the past. Um, the other one, I'm, it's not listed on Wikipedia, I couldn't find it on his IMDb, but I am fairly certain that the club owner is Alan Alda. I, I just, unless Alan Alda, like, watched the movie back and then refused to allow his name be used, I don't see why he would be in that role without any sort of credit. Yeah, it just, it sounded exactly like him, he had this great hat and a yellow checkered jacket. Just, okay, let's run through, real quick, let's run through the first day of this movie's agenda for Buckaroo Bonsai. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) alright, so as we've said. He starts with a casual brain surgery after being called in because he's the only one that can do it. Right, this is Buckaroo Bonsai, uh, who's half American, half Japanese. He's played by Robocop himself, Peter Weller. And then, from there, he... Basically says, let's do it again sometime to Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum is fully adrift in this movie. Well, he, like, he's... It feels like they have ideas for him, but then they don't. And it is not his fault. No, it feels like he is supposed to be the audience surrogate. He is supposed to be our entry into the world of Buckaroo Banzai, but then he just vanishes. And then they make him the... Like, most ridiculous one of them all. He's a cowboy named New Jersey. Ugh. So then he rushes via helicopter from the brain surgery to the, like, Utah Salt Flats so that he can drive his rocket car up to 1.5 Mach speed. What is it? Mach 1.5? Yeah. Yeah. Mach 1.5 speed, so that he then, like, veers off course to use a dimensional barrier shatterer created by James Edo, and then drives through a mountain into the eighth dimension, comes back with a, like, life form in his car, which doesn't really play a role in the movie. No, it just becomes their evidence that there is life in the eighth dimension, like, existing in parallel with her. Right. Goes to a press conference with the senator, the secretary of defense. Oh, let's not forget who else is on this. Uh, all the members of his science band are there. The uh, random woman that no, he picked up recently. No, this is the first press conference. <laughs> this <laughs> okay. is a movie with two press briefings. 
It's a hundred minutes. We got two press conferences. Main character has like four jobs. And then he goes from this press conference to a rock concert at a nightclub. In which he is the main act. In which he is the main act. He is the lead singer of the band. That his scientist fighters are also the band members. And then he almost gets shot by a strange woman who tries to kill him. I thought she was trying to kill herself. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't She's putting the gun to her own head. Okay. That makes more sense. But then they were like, oh, she tried to kill him. And then I got confused. But then at that point, I guess he goes to sleep. But that's a day in the life of Buckaroo Banzai. I spent a while trying to figure out, like, exactly how famous is this guy supposed to be? Incredibly. The answer is, he's the most famous person on the planet. There are licensed video games of him. There are official comic books. He has, like, an army of unofficial members of the, what is it? The Hong Kong Cabaret. Cavaliers. Cavaliers. Yeah, because what it, it's like if you were a kid in the 1950s and you, like, cut a thing out of a magazine to send it in and be given, like, a piece of paper that said, like, you're an official deputy of the Lone Ranger. Yes. And you'd be like, yeah, I can show this to my friends at school. I'm an official deputy of the Lone Ranger. Except in this film, that's real. And <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai will just call on random children to be like, hey, I need a helicopter. Yeah, and then luckily, you're a child whose father owns a helicopter, and then you save the day. And also, right. eventually hold the Secretary of right. Defense at gunpoint. Right, and then once you've shown up with the helicopter, you're not done. You are now conscripted into the main Hong Kong Cavaliers. You are long for everything. They give this child an automatic weapon! Someone call Child Protective Services. I think Buckaroo Banzai might be out of control. We need, like... A Walter Peck style character, like some government functionary who could be like, you must stop. I just, he exists at a power level that I can't imagine the US government ever allowing a single individual to live at. The fact that in Ghostbusters, they're like doing this thing and they become minor local celebrities. And then the government shows up and it's like, this is crazy. Meanwhile, in this movie, as you said, Buckaroo Banzai has a direct line to the president. And when he starts spouting off crazy stuff, the response from people in the White House is like, look, Buckaroo Banzai has never been wrong about anything before, so we should just listen to him. I was so surprised. Like, I'm so used to things like, you know, interdimensional travel in movies being covered up by the government that when he immediately is, like, on the news saying that he went to another dimension to the public and everyone knows, I didn't know how to wrap my mind around that idea. Where it was like, so everyone just knows what he does. He is not a, like, covert secret agent. No! I mean, clearly this movie is basically, you know, inspired by Flash Gordon and all those, you know, serials of the 50s. But in none of them are the main heroes famous. And it's weird how disconcerting that was. Yeah. The movie itself is written by screenwriter Earl Mac Rauch, who we've talked about before because he's the co-writer of New York, New York. Oh my goodness. What a career. I'll say, another kind of overstuffed movie. Yes. But (laughs) this movie makes New York, New York look like the most measured, reasonable thing. Uh, uh, That's all I can say. No thoughts. 
Rauch was initially a novelist, and he befriended W.D. Richter, who directed this movie, but was himself mainly a screenwriter. Like, Richter read one of Rauch's novels and was like, this rocks, and sent him a letter, and they struck up a friendship that way. So, Richter kept telling Rauch, like, hey, I want to make a movie of some of your stuff, so if you have good ideas for a movie, like, hit me up and we'll do it. And eventually, in, like, the mid-70s, like, ten years before this movie comes out, he paid Rauch $1,500 and said, go ahead and develop a screenplay based on this character you came up with. The initial character was called Buckaroo Bandy. He was not half Japanese, but he was inspired by, like, kung fu movies and, like, all the crazy stuff going on in, like, 70s kung fu movies. But then Earl Mac Rauch keeps, like, half writing a screenplay and then giving up and writing something else and then writing a different half screenplay about Buckaroo Bandy. And so he has all these, like, half-finished stories, including one that features Hitler's cigars as, like, a key MacGuffin. I assume some cloning is I probably assume. the thing. Some, like, Flesh Feast business? Right. Remember Flesh Feast? It barely. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good movie. Flesh Feast, we, we mentioned on this podcast, it's the last appearance of Veronica Lake. It's a movie where she basically clones Hitler so that she can kill him. With her, like, trained flesh-eating maggots. That sounds more interesting than it is. That all is, like, the last ten minutes. The rest of the movie's just wandering around. Yeah, it was so much more boring than we had hoped. Anyway, so he keeps writing these, like, different versions of Buckaroo Bandy, which eventually becomes Buckaroo Banzai. And after years, they settle on basically what the movie is. But all of those earlier ideas get compiled into this 300-page book called The Essential Buckaroo that was, like, kept on set to refer to, like a, like a TV series Bible. Of just, like, things to reference from his history? Basically, yeah. So for people who don't know, like, every TV show has what's called the, the Bible for the show, where they write down stuff that's been established. Like, char- like if they've mentioned a character's mom's name, they're going to put that in there so that they can refer back to it as they're building out the history of the universe of a TV show. So they basically had a series Bible for this one movie and kept, like, popping in stuff to it or trying to reference the other adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. And to me, that's probably part of what makes this movie feel so overstuffed is they had, like, six or seven different movies that got condensed into this one. And then they're like, ah, oh, you know, what What if we bring in some of that stuff anyway? Oh, I did kind of like that it wasn't an origin story. I did like that we were just thrust into this established character. There was originally a prologue that featured the murder of his father by the World Crime League. Thank God they cut that. I would not have wanted it. But you would have liked to see Jamie Lee Curtis as his mother in that sequence. Okay, yes, I would have enjoyed that. That got forced out by the producer, David Bagelman, who signed on pretty early on, but by the time it was actually being shot, Richter, in interviews in the 21st century, has referred to Bagelman as their enemy while they were making the movie. (laughs) Yikes. Apparently, he, like, kept insisting, like, there will only be one Buckaroo Banzai movie. You cannot seed stuff for other Buckaroo Banzai movies. We're not going to make them. So he's the one who made them cut out the prologue featuring the World Crime League. Eventually, he, like, stopped complaining about stuff. And the crew suspected that he had just given up. That he was like, I cannot work my will on this movie. And so they added the watermelon thing just to test to see if he was paying attention. Oh, God, what was the watermelon part? I already forgot. They're in one of the labs, and there is, like, this big piece of machinery with a watermelon stuck between two parts. And there's a conversation about, like, what's that doing there? Oh, right. And they're just kind of like, who knows? Yeah. That was there just to see if the producer, David Begelman, was paying any attention. And clearly by that point, no. Right. 
the one final demand he made was that the movie could not end with just a kiss between Buckaroo and Penny. And so he demanded a dance sequence. If nothing else for this movie, the fashion is out of this world. Which has, of course, been celebrated in the film Ready Player One when the character shows up for his date dressed as Buckaroo Banzai. No, he doesn't. I swear he does. No, he f- I, I swear to you, I, Ty Sheridan, digital Ty Sheridan, shows up in uh, whatever the world is called, the digital world is called, dressed as Buckaroo Banzai. Get out of town. Buckaroo Banzai? Huh? I like it. I like Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. You look, oh. you look awesome. Thank you. Wow. Ab, so f- Absolutely not. Ugh, I hate that movie, and I've never seen it. There are some okay sequences in it. I don't think it works. And you know, you know who's never bad? Who? Ben Mendelsohn. Well, yes, he is the sheriff of Nottingham. Before we move on from producer David Begelman, I'd just like to note that he was fired as the head of Columbia Pictures before this for embezzling money by forging checks in actors' names to, like, report in studio books, but then taking the money himself. Oh, my God. And before that, although this didn't come out until later, in the 60s, he was an agent, and among others, he was the agent for Judy Garland, and while he was her agent and producing the Judy Garland show, he blackmailed her. Oh, my God. And took a bunch of money from her. How did this man get this movie? I don't know. I mean, he had, I think he had a piece of it before he was fired from Columbia. Oh my god. Orion Pictures said, Embezzlement who? Well, this wasn't an Orion movie. What, isn't it? No, I think it's like a Fox movie. I could have sworn I saw the Orion logo. Well, I believe it is now... Yeah, it was distributed by Fox, but I think it's now owned by MGM. It was sold off at some point, and MGM owns Orion these days. Okay. I could have so sworn possible. I saw it. But who knows? It was released by Fox. It had a $12 million budget. Uh, Is that a lot? Which would be very little now, but was was too much. Okay. It feels like a movie with too much budget. If they had been given less, they would have had to to pare it down a little bit. Yeah. And again, you know, there is something it's... appealing about how just balls to the wall it is. That I did kind of, I did enjoy, honestly, just how absolutely absurd it was. Yeah. What's funny is to read anything about the marketing of the movie, because clearly Fox just had no idea how to market the how movie. How do you market this movie? How do you so- right. Even John Lithgow in that Philadelphia Inquirer interview was like, every time I start trying to explain the movie, it takes an hour. Yeah. And, and the then I say, go see the movie. The movie's only an hour 40. <laughs> right. But apparently, like, a big part of the marketing strategy was just sending people to Star Trek conventions to talk it up. Not a terrible marketing strategy for this time. You know, so they did that. They released, like, a Marvel Comics tie-in. So some advertising that way. Did you watch a trailer for this? I didn't. I don't even know what would be in the trailer. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, this thing, Fox released it, but they barely released it. In its opening week, at its peak, it was on 236 screens. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) And they put it out in August. I cannot believe they even put it out at that point. It was August 10th, 1984. It opened in 17th place with $620,000. It ultimately made $6 million, so it made half its budget. Just as a reminder of all this, so when The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which I guess, you know, I expected this to be a movie 
like zipping through different strange worlds, Buck Rogers style. Yeah. But I guess he does literally have an adventure across the eighth dimension. Like it's a bridge. Yeah, I I also really was expecting much more actual interdimensional travel. <laughs> right. I feel like my reaction to this is the way a lot of people reacted to Doctor Strange 2, where they're like, Multiverse of Madness, they only go to three universes. And in this, I'm like, across the eighth dimension, I'm like, I, I guess technically. They only go to three universes in Multiverse of Madness? Yeah, I think that's fu- I think it's fine. I like that movie. I just... Everything, everywhere, all at once had so many universes. <laughs> right, which is why I'm kind of glad that, like, ultimately Doctor Strange doesn't try to go for that. Because it's not going to match it for weirdness. Right. Hot dog figures. But anyway, Buckaroo Banzai, while it is opening in 17th place, at the top of the box office of August 10th, 1984, we have Red Dawn, the 10th week of Ghostbusters. Okay. Purple Rain, Revenge of the Nerds, The Karate Kid, and Gremlins. Wow. Further down, you've got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Muppets Take Manhattan, and just beneath Buckaroo Banzai, Week 20 of Romancing the Stone. Week 20. (laughs) This movie, I am not surprised it bombed at all. I, I think part of it is like you look at that list and this movie becomes a cult classic because it's so goofy and it's so out there. And I appreciate that. But like if you are a theater goer in the summer of 1984, you have so many other options for very weird genre stuff. Yeah, it's not a dearth of weird sci-fi. Right, you can go see Gremlins, you can go see Ghostbusters, you can see The Muppets Take Manhattan, another movie with a crazy relationship in it. My god, I cannot wait to get into the romance. So, I feel like I can watch this and I can recognize why it's a movie that a lot of people really enjoy, but I very much struggled to make any sense of it. I feel that this movie would be fun under the influence of substances late at night. I'm sure. I think that might be part of its appeal in the cult movie circuit. I'm sure. But, like, it's directed by W.D. Richter, who two years later co-writes Big Trouble in Little China. And to me, that is a much more successful version of the let's do a bunch of crazy stuff in one movie And just be goofy with it attitude. It's clearly possible to do a ton of goofy stuff and out there stuff in one movie. This just isn't successful at it. Right. And I think part of it, like, Big Trouble has, like, five characters. And this movie has, like, 30 characters. Oh my god, when they, like, have that weird walking sequence at the end of the movie during the credits, people just kept showing up. Because you've got Buck, you've got Penny Pretty, you've got... All of the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Perfect Tommy, Rawhide, who I thought was dead. Um, who are the other ones? You have Lester and his dad. Lester and his dad. I'm trying to see how many of the names of the um, Hong Kong Cavaliers I can remember. But it's just like so hard to retain who everyone is in this movie. And Big Trouble, you're like, you got Kurt Russell, you got Kim Cattrall, you got a couple other guys. I've not seen Big Trouble in Little China yet, but it sounds very good. (laughs) It rocks. We should do it. So, speaking of romance. Yeah. Should we get into it? Yeah, I think that we have to. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. Great balls of fire. Um, (laughs) hold on. I'm trying to look up who the first woman elected to the Senate was in a normal election. Okay. 1973. So there had been a woman in the Senate before the random woman senator in this movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought so, but I couldn't remember. 
just give her a shout out while we're here. Who's the first woman elected to the Senate? Okay, so the first woman in the Senate was, the first few were appointed. So the first to serve was Rebecca Felton from Georgia for one day. That barely counts. From November 21st to November 22nd, 1922. I'm assuming that it was a widow situation. A lot of women in politics are, like, appointed to replace dead husbands. The first elected for an actual term was Margaret Chase Smith from Maine. Oh, of course. In 1973. Yes. Who was that woman senator? Why her? There are a hundred senators. I want to know why she was there. Let's say she was the majority leader. Sure. (laughs) Or at least the, like, party of the president leader. Yeah. So you got her, you got the president in his, like, my back is broken suspension hamster wheel. You got the secretary of defense, and you've got a warmongering general. Who, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Because I do like that he admits that he's afraid. He's the only one that does. Yeah. But then it is funny when he immediately jumps to, well, if the world's getting destroyed, we should at least be the first to blow up the Russians. Right, let's have some fun with it. I have a question about the Lectroids plan, the, like, good Lectroids. Why are they going to blow up Russia if John Warfin, who they want to kill, is in New Jersey when they could just bomb New Jersey, even though the end result would be the same of, like, nuclear war? I assumed there was something about the geological properties of Smolensk that meant bombing that place would cause sufficient destruction to achieve their goals. To me, it sounds like they were just counting on blowing up Russia, and then Russia would blow up the U.S. with nukes. And then John Warfin would die. You're probably right, but that is, like many things in this movie, needlessly complicated. All right, so romance. Every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to keep us on track, something this movie does not do. Will, will you take us to point one? This is one of those movies that feels like it consistently forgets there's supposed to be romance. Yes. That is extremely accurate. And may even occasionally forget what characters' roles are supposed to be. Who is she? <laughs> also, again, what is Jeff Goldblum's deal? Poor Jeff Goldblum in this movie, I swear. Yeah, if I like if I wanna do if I wanna talk about the romance of a movie with Jeff Goldblum and aliens, we're doing Earth Girls Are Easy. Yes. This Have you seen that? Part? I have not. Is it good? Okay. I watched it at 10 o'clock at night on HBO. Uh Uh-huh. So I had a great time, especially going and knowing nothing, except that it was Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I would appreciate it if you look up nothing about that movie, and sometime you and I can just watch it. Okay, I will not look anything up. Okay. So we're going to talk about the romance of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Again, our lead is Buckaroo Banzai, played by Peter Weller, and our romantic lead, Penny Pretty is played by Alan Barkin. So our romance begins at the end of that long day that Mark described, where having done surgery on someone's brain, crossed the eighth dimension, and given a press conference, Buckaroo Banzai is now here at a club to do his show, to perform with the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Because nothing winds down a day of breaking dimensional barriers quite like... (laughs) playing a rock concert. And so they're performing, and he stops mid-song to ask if everyone's having a good time, to call out if anyone's crying, because while performing, he recognizes someone here is crying, and that is unacceptable. (laughs) No one cries during my show. 
I am Buckaroo Banzai. I have never been wrong about anything. The U.S. government recognizes that. I'm pulled in different directions, but achieve all of them. No one cries at my show. What's your name? Who cares? Well, I care. What's your name? Penny. Did you say Peggy? No. My name's Penny. Penny Pretty. It doesn't matter. It's not important. I just said... I just sponged up a little like too much fat 69. That's all. I'm down on my last nickel in this lousy town. They wouldn't even take my luggage in half. I don't get it. The stopping that concert moment was a lot. Completely unhinged behavior. He demands a spotlight and a microphone on this crying woman, Ellen Barkin. This poor woman. I'm gonna leave her alone. Her name is Penny. He keeps calling her Peggy for a while. And she's just talking about like how her life stinks and that's why she's crying. She's all alone. And he's like, I'm gonna sing a song for you. And he starts singing. At which point she like very ostentatiously starts taking a pistol out of her purse and, like, putting it to her head, like, as dramatically, just, like, huge motions, like, clearly trying to draw attention to herself and not one person notices. The only reason she doesn't shoot herself in the head is because, like, a waiter bumps into her and the gun goes off in a different direction. (laughs) I can't with this movie. And then all the papers just go with, ah, some lady tried to kill Buckaroo Banzai and she gets arrested. And then, what, it's, like, not that much after, but it's still, like, ten minutes where she's forgotten about. Unmentioned. Unmentioned. And then, for some reason, Buckaroo Banzai is in the jail. Yeah, well, he goes to visit her in jail, which I think is not an unreasonable thing. No, but it kind of just happens. Like, they just kind of cut to him in jail. Let her out. Yeah, let her out. I'll be responsible. She's a killer. No, she's not. And give her your coat. Why me? Because you're perfect. You have a point there. Right, it's a little weird. Uh, What's even weirder is Ellen Barkin in the jail, like, never sits or stands like a normal person. She is just always splayed in some weird direction that's, like, half seductive, but more just looks uncomfortable. It's just bizarre. She's, like, luxuriating. But he says, you know what? I know you didn't try to kill me. Come with me. Unlock the cell. She's out of here. <sighs> and I guess the way that works is like he declined to press charges? No, because he has the power to just let people out of jail because he is a law unto himself. He has never been wrong, is the thing. Yeah. Point number three, she's just part of the crew now. By which I mean, the next time we see her, we so we leave the jail, cut to a press conference. Buck is giving another press conference. This time, he's there about... The threat of the Electroids. Right, and about, like, look, there's aliens in uh, the 8th Dimension. I My car came back. I have this, like, alien brain thing. The press conference is Buckaroo Banzai, the entire Hong Kong Cavaliers, the Secretary of Defense, 
And for some reason, Penny Pretty is just on the panel with a microphone. Yeah, and like, I think there's a couple of the Hong Kong Cavaliers there, but not all of them. Like, she has clearly joined the high rank. Like, what does she have to contribute to this press conference? She's just asking questions down the table. It doesn't make sense. You get a funny joke about it when, like, she is able to, like, recite back all the science stuff. And she's like, oh, doesn't everybody know this? But that's just a one-off gag. Like, she is not then engaged in doing science in the rest of the movie when a lot of science is going on. She's fascinating. So she's just part of the crew now. But also, every once in a while, the movie remembers that maybe they could be a thing. We've also seen the picture at this point. It's after this that she sees the picture, though. Yeah, but we've seen it, so we know something's weird about it. We have seen a photo of Buckaroo Banzai with Ellen Barkin. We also know from the conversation in the jail before he has her let out that she's an orphan and she was adopted and she just feels like part of her has always been missing. So one of the next times we see Penny, she has locked herself in, a, in the closet at Buckaroo's house because she's very upset because she has seen this photo of her exact lookalike with Buckaroo Banzai. And he's like, look, I don't know how to explain it to you. It seems like you had a twin that you were separated from at birth. And I married her, and now she's dead, and now I'm with you. The universe, man! And he's just like, fine with it. I th- I feel like this is a movie that repeatedly uses like coincidence and happenstance to resolve things in a way that can be kind of frustrating. Because like coincidences are an okay starting place for a story. Oh, we've bumped into each other, now where do we go from here? But this is a movie that uses coincidence as a conclusion a bunch. So, like, they're basically just together once they've landed on the coincidence of, I guess she was twins with his dead wife. And, like, at the end of the movie, the day is saved because there happens to be a laser on the spaceship that Buckaroo gets on. Like, and they didn't know there was a laser when they got in it. They had no plan. That's what makes the ending feel anticlimactic. Yeah. No, if they had, like, discovered... So they get in this pod to get onto the ship in general. If they had discovered the laser and then chosen to evacuate the pod and shoot the plane, it would have made more sense than the pod getting, like, thrown off the plane and them falling through the air and then discovering the laser. Yeah. This movie is frustrating. Anyway, uh... John Lithgow kidnaps Penny for, it seems, no reason? uh, Well, no, 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 he holds her hostage. He holds her hostage. John Lithgow kidnaps Penny to hold her hostage because he needs the oscillator overthruster. Which he thinks, he doesn't realize that Penny actually does have. Uh, Yes, uh, this is uh, Emilio Lizardo. Maybe you don't remember me. Ah, I'm flattered. Uh, We know the same people. Yeah, in fact, one of them is with me right now, your associate, uh, Dr. Penny Pretty. Doctor? Uh, may I pass along my congratulations for your great uh, interdimensional uh, breakthrough? I'm sure in the miserable annals of the Earth, you will be duly enshrined! So he's holding her hostage to, like, get Buckaroo Banzai to give it to him. So that leads to, like, a bunch, you know, action sequence. They raid John Lithgow's base, whatever, whatever, whatever. At some point, Lithgow just, like, decides to execute Penny. Yes, but in by, a very by slow slug. way. Right. He puts a slug at the end of a rail that will slug up to her and then, I guess, poison her? Yeah. That normal way of killing people. Yeah. Seems like a great plan. 
uh, Buckaroo obviously gets there in time and just throws the slug away. Yeah, it uh, it's so boring. <laughs> With his hand, I think. I'm not clear what was poisonous about the slug. Maybe it had a stinger. Like, you could pick up yeah. a scorpion and throw it. But she is still kind of, like, not in great shape. And at the end of the movie, after they've defeated John Lithgow, Buckaroo comes back to her where she's lying, seemingly, like, unconscious or something like that. And he goes in to kiss her. And electricity from his journeys across the eighth dimension crackles out from his lips. And she is kissed slash electrocuted awake. And they kiss, and that's the end of the movie. So, Will, after watching this movie, do you find the romance believable? I do not. And I'm going to set much of the nonsense of the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension aside and say very simply that I think if someone had recently come into my life and kind of, like, taken me in and, like, was clearly getting a romantic thing going with me, and I discover that they had been married to my unknown identical twin, I would find that really creepy. It's weird. I personally find it bizarre. Because he's just yes. going to... I would not want to be that person because they're just going to compare for the rest of our relationship. Right. It feels like he tried to, like, go back for another. Yeah, like, give it a second shot with the same woman rather than falling in love with a new woman. I, I think it would be very, very uncomfortable. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the least believable, where would you rate this? A 1? <laughs> I was gonna say, like, a 2 or 3, because it makes sense why he would fall in love with her, at least. Well, sure! But it does- the She is exactly his type. Yeah, so, like, there is that element where- that tracks for me, so I feel that it might get a two, or, yeah, I'm gonna go with the two. I'm sticking with a one. Okay. This movie's crazy. Uh, do you think Penny or Buckaroo are dateable? Well, we should keep in mind, Buckaroo has never been wrong, which honestly would be pretty frustrating. Yeah, that sounds terrible in a partner. Somebody who can always throw that out, like, well, look, I've never been wrong, so The president clearly... said so. Um, so I don't want to date him. Penny, I don't understand. Is she a brilliant scientist? She's definitely depressed. She is quite depressed. Uh, I don't really want to date her. No. I don't want to... Well, we'll get to that later. Do you think Buckaroo and Penny would stay together? I kind of do, but I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Um, Mark, who in this movie would you date? You gotta pick somebody. Oh, God. I was about to say I don't want to date anyone, but... um, I'm dating the Jersey Club owner who might be Alan Alda. He's a snappy dresser. That's fair. Uh, part of me wants to just say one of the journalists because they ha- had not enough time on screen to do anything too wild. They also had the right amount of incredulity. Yeah. But accepted the proof. So that, or maybe just perfect Tommy because he is so bland, but looks good with a shirt off. All right. Now, Mark, last question. Should there be a Buckaroo Banzai musical? No. <laughs> yeah. Just correct. I think it's pretty clear why not. Yeah. Now, would I be interested? <laughs> yes. <laughs> would I see it? Yes. Oh, absolutely. With music by Bono and The Edge? Like, come on. Oh my god. Uh, Alright, I think that's it. We've traversed the eighth dimension and made it out the other side, and hopefully we didn't bring anything with us. Um, This was a delightful conversation about a baffling experience. Thanks again to Fred for recommending that we do this. I think it was worth it. I'm glad I was on a plane so I couldn't text you as I was watching Yeah, I think that's for the best. 
Uh, next week, we will be discussing another movie about aliens, but of a very different kind. <laughs> <laughs> we will be watching 1937's Daughter of Shanghai, starring Anime Wong. A very cool movie that you can watch for free on the Internet Archive. And it's only an hour. So it's probably shorter than whatever those House of the Dragon episodes are running. Oh my god. Which comes out in two days for us. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions, just like our dear friend Fred, at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Now, Will, here's a question I was dreading. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension? Oh boy. Um, it can be cool to point out when your partner does something that is cool and unusual. Like Buckaroo really highlights to Penny, like, no, everyone wouldn't understand this science. Like, that's, that's really unusual that you pulled all that out. I think he does it in an encouraging way. My advice, I guess, is some men have a protective instinct. And if you want to get their attention, you should be sad. Cry at their shows? Cry at their concert? That's unacceptable at a Buckaroo Bonsai concert. If you cry, the concert's over. Yeah, and everyone will hate you. Even more. (sighs) All right, we did it. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Yeah.